Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Ellen Nirenberg. Welcome to today's conversation on the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. My guest today is Charles Levitt, author of the beautifully produced Italian Neorealism, A Cultural History, which has just been published by the University of Toronto Press in its Italian Studies series. Let me tell you something about our guest. Charles Levitt is Assistant Professor of Italian at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also Faculty Fellow of the Nanovic Institute for European Studies. His interests include modern and contemporary Italian literature and cinema, post-war Italian history, and the intersections between the Italian and African-American experience. He has served as co-editor of the Italianist Film Issue and Visiting Research Fellow of the University of Reading. In addition to the monograph we are discussing today, Charles Levitt has contributed to several books, including World Film Locations, Florence, Transmissions of Memory, Echoes, Traumas, and Nostalgia in Post-World War II Italian Culture, and The Total Art, Italian Cinema from Silent Screen to Digital Image. His scholarship has also appeared in such journals as Modern Language Notes, Italian Culture, The Journal of Modern Italian Studies, California Italian Studies, Tre Corone, and The Italianist. A fellow of the UK's Higher Education Academy, Professor Levitt has received an outstanding contribution to Teaching Excellence Award from the University of Wedding, uh, Reading pardon, and a Canab Distinguished Graduate Teaching Award from the University of Notre Dame, where he took his PhD. Welcome, Charles Levitt, to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you. Right. So, um, Charles, as you know, most of the episodes on the New Books Network begin by our asking authors how it is that they came to write the book uh, that's up for discussion. So would you oblige us by saying something about your book once more entitled Italian Neorealism, A Cultural History? Yeah, I'd be happy to, if for no other reason than that I think I came to this topic, I came to this project really from a, a pretty, I think, unusual direction, which is that, you know, when we think of neorealism, I think what we tend to think of are a handful of really monumental post-war Italian films, Bicycle Thieves and Rome Open City, that, um, you know, continue to be a a key part of the um, film canon, a a key part of, you know, all teaching, I think, in, in film studies and Italian studies. It's the kind of thing that you you invariably come across as you're studying Italian or film at university. Um, and like, I think, a, a number of other students, I saw these films when I was an undergraduate. I saw Bicycle Thieves. I saw Rome Open City. I saw um, Ossessione Visconti. And they didn't really speak to me necessarily. I think I probably just wasn't, wasn't ready for them. And I think if you had told me at that point that I would, have, it, it would go on to write a book about neorealism, I think I would have been really shocked. Um, but late, much later on in my academic career, I found myself uh, with the opportunity to read around in the, the post-war Italian periodical literature, the kind of cultural journals and literary magazines and, and newspapers and, and um, you know, film journals. And I was doing this, you know, in a sense, just on, on my own and, and thinking about what I... You know, what was so striking to me about these these magazines, right? Why was I drawn to them? And I think what what drew me to them was this sense, you know, Italy at, at the end of the Second World War had just lived through twenty years of, of fascism and dictatorship, had just 
fought a really disastrous war and then had been occupied first by the Germans and then by the Americans. It was it was a pretty rough situation to be in, and you know they they were impoverished. They were um, living you know in in pretty squalid conditions often, and yet they were publishing these incredibly heartfelt, incredibly sophisticated, and to my mind really moving um, articles, editorials, debates about what would come next, right? How do you rebuild a country? How do you rebuild a culture? These were the kinds of questions they were asking. And they were doing so, I thought, in terms that were um, were really meaningful, meaningful for, for them clearly, but, but also meaningful in a kind of contemporary sense as well. And, and so I just found myself enamored of these journals. And the more that I read them, the more that I thought, this is what I have to work on. And it was my, um, my dissertation project then, to study the the literary and cultural debates of the post-war period in Italy. And after finishing that project, I then um, sort of returned in a kind of meandering way to those neorealist films. And I felt like, you know, if I wasn't ready for them before, all of a sudden I could see them with new eyes and I could see how they too were asking and trying to answer some of these same questions. How do you rebuild a country? How do you rebuild a culture? What went wrong why did we head down the road of fascism and what do we do next? And, and when I could understand those films as in some way on, you know, in dialogue with the, those, um, the journals and the debates that I was studying, and when I could understand those films as, you know, as being of the same cultural universe and shaped by the same cultural concerns, all of a sudden they spoke to me in a much more profound way. And it's that that then inspired me to write the book, to try to share with readers what I had come finally to be able to see in these films. You know, that's so interesting. And um, particularly in view of the of the rich um, of the rich intertextual cultural history that you bring forward, how these texts and by texts, you know, I'm speaking quite broadly here to include all of the kind of ephemera that you've discussed, but also, um, or rather not including ephemera that might have to do with the film culture, for example, but also the journals and um, the, uh, the visual texts, the artistic texts of many different genres, how, they, how this project speaks across those boundaries. I think we're going to come back to that, but it's um, it's really illuminating to, as it always is, to listen to someone chart their the genesis of their project. And um, I was hoping that you could, before we get too much down that road, you could tell uh, um, our listeners and tell tell us something about the way that you've structured this inquiry. Sure, I'd be happy to. So. In my introduction, I lay out something like the the case that I just made for you about why it, it's useful, I think, to to rewatch and reanalyze the neorealist films alongside those cultural debates and alongside literature, art, architecture, music, to see them as part of a much broader cultural spectrum. Right? And I try to explain why I think that's useful in my introduction. And then the rest, in, in, in four chapters, I try to take what I take to be you know, exemplary case studies of a literary text and a film in each chapter that I think help to explain some of the key issues at play in the post-war Italian scene. So for instance, 
in the in the first chapter, I look at a novel, uh, Elio Vittorini's Uomini e No from 1945, Men and Not Men, um, and Lucchino Visconti's 1948 film La Terra Trema, or The Earth Trembles. And I look at those two works in order to try to answer the question, what was neorealism? So my concern in this first chapter, in addition to analyzing the two works that I've just named, was really to try to think about why was it when Vittorini's novel was published in 1945 that critics called it neorealist, right? If you read the reviews, critics say this is a, a neorealist novel. Well, what did they mean, right? And why was it that three years later when La Terra Trema comes out, right, to, um, I think, somewhat mixed reviews, really, why, when it comes out, do the critics, whatever they think of the film, they think it's neorealist. Now, they might think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but they call this film a neorealist film. So why? What did they mean by that? And in that first chapter, I do, I, I try to reconstruct in the reception of these works, but also in what the works themselves are doing. I try to re-describe neorealism to answer you know, what was neorealism. In my second chapter, I, again, I take two case studies. Uh, this time it's a 1947 film called Caccia Tragica or Tragic Hunt by Giuseppe De Santis and a novel, uh, Il Sentiero dei Nidi di Ragno, The Path to the Spider's Nest by Italo Calvino, to try to think about um, what was really, you know, the most problematic and difficult and naughty question in the post-war period, which is the question of continuity or disjuncture. Or in other words, after 20 years of fascism, what do you do? Do you start over again from scratch? You know, scrap everything, throw out everything that you can, get rid of everything from the past that you can and, and try to start over anew? Or do you try to, you know, latch on to what's living and vital and still um, uncorrupted in the culture and try to continue? And that question, I think, relates to a question that continues to trouble scholars of neorealism, which is, you know, was neorealism, the name, you know, new realism, it, it's, it's there even in, in that, in the word neorealism, was this something that was fundamentally new after the war, or was it something that continued on from the fascist cinema? And I think traditionally, you know, there was this sort of, um, I think, tendency to, to describe neorealism as something that was born, you know, again, from scratch, from, from nothing, from the rubble of the war. And then, Beginning in the 1970s, there was this pushback on the part of critics to say, well, well, wait a second. In fact, neorealism continues on from the, the cinema uh, under fascism. In fact, many of the same directors and actors are, are working in the neorealist cinema who had previously worked in, in fascist cinema. Don't we need to think you know, about continuity? And indeed, isn't continuity here somewhat problematic? Um, and so I tried to, to work through that and to come up with a new way to think about neorealism as um, as continuing on from, but also as uh, in in some meaningful ways new um, after the war. In my third chapter, um, again, two case studies. This time, I take a play by uh, Leopoldo Trieste called Cronaca, which is from 1945, and one of the most famous neorealist films, 1948's um, Bicycle Thieves to try to think about you know, what neorealism was trying to represent, right? What, do, what even do we mean by realism in this context? Um, and, and what I argue in that chapter is that, that realism meant showing an individual experience, right? How e an individual, one person, one man, one woman, 
lives in reality, how, how we experience reality, but then to try to tie that to much broader um, political forces, uh, social patterns and structures, so that you can see how, to take the case of bicycle thieves, right? We have one poor man who's out of work, gets work, you know, is, is fortunate enough to find a job but needs a bicycle, has to go through all kinds of trials and tribulations to get a bicycle, which he then loses when he has stolen from him, right? So we see his poverty, what it means to his family that this bicycle is stolen. But we also, I think, through this film are being shown what post-war poverty looked like, not just for this man, but for, for all of Italy. What the social structures, right, the, the church, the, the government, what they functioned as in this society. And, and so I think what's, what's happening here, is, in my view, is that realism means showing how individual experience is shaped by uh, broader social forces. And I show that, again, through this film Bicycle Thieves and through a play, Kronika, which is, I think, largely unknown at this point, but which is, uh, I, I think, should be much better known. It's believed to be the first play in in um, Europe to depict the Holocaust or to try to represent um, the the aftermath of the Holocaust. In this case, it's a, it's a play that uh, depicts a survivor coming home um, and finding that you know the the man who who betrayed him, who sold him to the to the Nazis. Um, and and again, in that play, you see somebody in in this this character in in the play who's trying to understand both you know what happened to him, why his friend betrayed him, but also what is it that led to the Holocaust? What forces allowed fascism and Nazism to rise to power and to pursue genocide? So that's my third chapter. And in my fourth chapter, um, I look at uh, a poem by Alfonso Gatto called Peri Martiri di Piazza Loreto for the Martyrs of Piazza Loreto, and a film uh, from 1946 called Il Sole Sorge Ancora by Aldo Vergano. Um, which I think is called Outcry, but it's, uh, you know, the sun rises again. Um, and these two works, I think, helped me to explore the question of what was neorealism trying to accomplish? You know, I think we all have the experience in watching a neorealist film that the, these films want something from us, right? They're, they're trying to do something. They're, they're often understood to be political films. So I asked, you know, what, what does that mean, right? Are they trying to get us to go out and, and vote? And if so, for which party? Or do they want something different from us? Do they want something more from us? And I think the way that, that I got at that was by looking at these two case studies and then trying to read them in light of the debates about what culture and society were supposed to do after the war. So those are my four chapters. And, and then in my conclusion, I try to tie things together and to think about, you know, where... Uh, where this leaves us in our understanding of neorealism and where we might go next if, if we wish to continue to speak about and to think about neorealism. Right. So to, uh, to recapitulate then, you move from what is neorealism to uh, what is it trying to, um, uh, what's it trying to do? What is it trying to present? And then what's it trying to accomplish? That's those are the those are the sort of the four areas that you seek to um, explore in this book, and you know it's so interesting. Um, I have a I have a couple of questions um, about the about the works themselves and how um, how they speak 
both to each other and, and across each other. And I would really love to hear you talk about the choice of the material, because as an Italianist, I can tell people who might not know that there are some what we would call canonical texts, but some decidedly non-canonical texts, one of which would be Cronaca, for example, that people don't really talk about that much. Um, and I'd love to know um, th about that operation of getting those, um, uh, getting shining a light on both of those things at the same time, but also bringing along with perhaps a better known work, um, a work that has been lesser known in, in the archives of, um, of this body of work. Sure. So I think I tried as much as I could in immersing myself in the material, and particularly in, in those journals, in those debates, in this in this moment. You know, I tried to get beyond what I had been taught or what I had come to, I think, assume probably about this post-war period, and to try to see it with fresh eyes, and as much as anyone can, to try to see it with the eyes of somebody who might be living through it, right? So I would go and read the reviews in the back of these magazines, right? And read the reviews where their judgments often didn't match the judgments of the, you know, the, the textbooks that have followed, right? So, so famously, you know, uh, Rome Open City, which we now think of as one of the masterpieces of world cinema, right? It got sort of mediocre reviews. I don't think anybody thought it was the most important film of the year, let alone one of the most important films ever made, right? So, so why, right? Read, reading those reviews helps perhaps to think about how they saw things. And, and, and while it, you know, it helps us maybe to take off a pedestal some of the films that, that we've put up there, it also helps, I think, to see films that we've perhaps underestimated. So you know, one of those is the Il Sole Sojancora, which I, I think is, you know, came out not long after Rome Open City, does some of the same things. I find it to be you know, really beautiful, really moving film with, with some really striking scenes, some imagery, some use of sound that I think is really innovative. Um, but it doesn't really get studied. Now, there's a very practical reason for that, which is it's never been released on DVD. It's, it's a film that's actually quite hard to see, right? The, it's a production company that um, I think no longer exists. You don't know how to get the rights. And so the, the film is difficult to see and it's understudied or largely unstudied, I think, for that reason. That's the same for a, a film like Caccia Tragica, which was the first feature film by the director Giuseppe De Santis. Now, De Santis went on to be one of the most famous directors in neorealism. He's really well known for a film, Riso Maro, Bitter Rice, that he made uh, soon after Caccia Tragica. But I think Caccia Tragica is every bit as interesting as, as Bitter Rice. It's just that while Bitter Rice is, is very easy to get a hold of, Caccia Tragica is very difficult, if not impossible. Um, so in, in terms of the films, I tried not to think about, you know, what, what I could easily stream, but, you know, what was it that seemed important to somebody at the time? And with the, with the literary works, it's largely the same. Now, Kronika, I have to say, I had not heard of. Leopoldo Trieste, if he's famous at all, it's because he was an actor. He's an actor in Fellini's films, and he's in The Godfather, too. So I, I recognized him from that. Um, but... I didn't know that he was a playwright and, and I didn't know, it, you know anything about really post-war theater when I started. Um, but I was interested in, in that word, kronaka, which is the title of his play. You know, it, means, it means chronicle. Often it's used to talk about in, you know, reporting in the newspaper. And I was tracing that term, right? What did they mean by this term 
chronica, which is often applied to neorealist films. They're chronicles in some way, right? They're an attempt to, to capture and report on reality. And when I found that there was a play called Chronica, I thought I have to see it. Um, and I found the um, theater journal that it was published in and, and I read it and I thought, it, you know, this is, this is unbelievable. It's fascinating. And it's, it's so clearly a part of this moment, right? And, and it really has something to say. So um, when, I, when I read it, I thought that uh, it helped me to understand neorealism. It helped me to understand the politics of neorealism, the realism of neorealism. And so I wanted to, to share it with readers. So I think maybe the, the best answer to your question, Ellen, is to say, I wasn't concerned with what was canonical. I was concerned with what was uh, most meaningful for for me and and for the the new uh, description of, of neorealism that I was trying to put forward. Well, so the the interesting thing about that is I, I well I should mention I just saw Leopoldo Trieste today because I'm teaching divorce Italian style, and he is um, as you pointed out from he's a brilliantly comic actor for one thing. Uh, Trieste, um, hilarious in Godfather 2, equally hilarious in Jeremy's divorce Italian style. Um, sure. And uh, yeah, which I just mentioned by way of saying that I was teaching, which leads me to this question. So um, invariably, when we teach courses and when we write books too, we do tend to canonize um, through our choices. But my question is, um, for those of us who teach uh, Italian cinema, it seems like you might be making the case that so that we get to the underpinnings, these rich, the cultural history of neorealism, maybe we ought not to be teaching courses on Italian neorealist cinema, but rather courses that have a broader base, shall we say, to explore other kinds of materials so that we might get at a fuller portrait of the period and the phenomenon. I don't, what, what do you think about that? Well, I wouldn't presume to tell anyone how they should teach their courses. And in fact, I'm often really impressed at the very different ways and innovative ways that, that people find to teach this material. So um, I don't want to be prescriptive in any way, but I think there, there probably are ways to approach this material that, that we haven't often uh, considered in, in Italian studies or in film studies for that matter. So, you know, one thought that I would have, uh, you know, is that this term neorealism in the post-war Italian context was never applied only to Italian works. It, it came from the French. It was a term that the Italians borrowed, um, that they borrowed from not just uh, French film and film criticism, but from French literary criticism, where it was applied to a group of post-naturalist writers. And then when the Italians adopted the term, they used it to describe much broader European and, and, and global trends and, and never thought about it, I think, in proprietary terms. So they talked about British neorealism, for, interest, for, for example, and they talked about Flaherty and Grierson, or they talked about Soviet neorealism, by which they meant Eisenstein and Pudovkin. And they talked about American neorealism. So they found that in films like Boomerang by Ilya Kazan or Crossfire by Dimitrik, The Naked City called Northside 777, Cry of the City, right? these, these post-war American films that the Italians at the time saw as being of a piece with their own cinema of Roma and City, Bicycle Thieves, Paisan, uh, Shusha. Um, and so one way maybe to teach neorealism would be to teach that global neorealism. I know there are several recent books that have explored global neorealism. And I think 
in for my own work and for my own teaching, they've been really helpful to try to expand um, what I introduce to students. Um, but an, another way to do this, perhaps, and I think this might be what you're getting at, is you know, in my own teaching, I don't teach a class on neorealist cinema. Um, I, I teach a class here at Notre Dame that I call After the Flood, which I take um, from a title of a, a book by Dino Terra called Dopo il Diluvio, which was an attempt uh, to bring together some of the leading intellectuals in post-war Italy to reflect on what the country should be like after the war. And so um, this metaphor of the flood, right, the biblical flood that washed away um, the past and, and, and opened up this new future uh, for 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 humanity, right, became for them a way to rethink, you know, everything from the city uh, to the family, um, to, you know, to, to poetry and literature, to cinema, but 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 really the foundations of society. And I use that in my teaching, this this sense of after the flood, to to teach a course in which the students, yes, watch some of the neorealist films and yes, read some neorealist literature, but we also talk about about art and architecture. We, we study in a much more broadly uh, cultural uh, framework what happened in Italy after the war. And, and to my mind, that can help students, um, it, can, it can help scholars, it can help all of us really, I think, to appreciate what neorealism was all about better in my experience than just watching the films. Like I said, when I saw the films the first time, they didn't really speak to me, but, but they do now. And I hope I'm able to share that with my students by getting them to, to see these films um, with perhaps more informed eyes. You know, it's, um, I'm sure that that's the case. And I wanted to um, go back to this contested, you mentioned um, post-naturalist writers. So we've got um, a bunch of terms that I'd like to clarify. And I'd also like to historicize because one of the things that emerged from uh, from my reading of your book was how interestingly um, figures, arch figures of European modernism, like Joyce and Proust and Wolf, I think you mentioned also, um, were re- were the re- their reception in Italy was actually more as realists, which I find which I found really curious, and I think it would be you know interesting for our listeners to hear about that too because. Um, there are so many of the terms you, you mentioned. Neorealism is it going back to realism? Is it going back to naturalism? Now we have this. Now we have modernism in play. So could we talk about what those different realisms were? Um, yeah, could we talk about that? The, the, the different realisms and their historical moments. Sure. I think that's a really good question. And and I say that because it's one of the questions that really um, was driving me. I wanted to understand when they use this term neorealism, what did they mean, right? What what does it mean to be realist? And, and I felt like the best way for me to come to an answer to that question was to think about critical semantics, right? A history of the term. When did it enter the Italian vocabulary? What did it mean when they first used it? What contexts did they use it in? Um, what were the what were the works? What were the authors? What were the filmmakers uh, who were uh, branded with this term? Right? What what did they mean? And and like you said, one of the things that I found right, the thing that perhaps surprised me the most was that writers who I had been taught to think of as modernists, James Joyce and Marcel Proust, uh, foremost among them, were in an Italian context described as being realists. And I thought. Well, hold on a second. What does that even mean, right? What, what does it mean to call those writers 
um, realist, right? That Joyce, who's who's so experimental, right? Who plays with time, who plays with uh, you know issues of subjectivity and interiority, with you know the the interior monologue. What what does it mean to call him a, a realist? And so you know my my initial suspicion was that this was you know a kind of quirk of of a couple Italian critics who you know were reading Joyce in, in translation perhaps and didn't. Um, didn't really understand him, and 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 I came to believe actually that that's that's not at all the case. That in fact that the, they understood Joyce quite well, and far from being a quirk of a few critics, this was I think a a, a pretty profound um, a, a profound discovery of the um, the, the Italian uh, critical uh, mass, right? Critical context, and so I so I tried to understand what they meant, right? And I think what they meant was that it you know Joyce was trying to give in Ulysses a, a sense of the experience of real time right time as it is lived right so the novel famously takes place over a day right and and you have things like you know uh Leopold Bloom who's humming advertising jingles in in his head right I, I think we all have the experience of getting uh, something like like that right stuck in stuck in your head and that that reality to the, in that sense Right, doesn't conform to the uh, the models of say 19th century naturalist uh, fiction, where you get these lengthy descriptions of you know the furniture in a room and you know the the make and the year and the the material from which the the objects in a house uh, are, are constructed. Right, I I think I have a tendency, you know, speaking personally here, not to notice those things at all, and certainly not to know right when some object was purchased and brought into somebody else's home, right? That's not what reality feels like to me. It feels perhaps more like that sort of uh, experiential uh, reality that you get in, in Ulysses, right? Ulysses where, uh, you know, famously characters stop to, to urinate, right? Well, this is something that, you know, we, we, we human beings in our bodies do, right? We're, we're embodied. We don't live in, again, the, the, the world of, uh, you know, naturalist description. We we live in a in, in a world of bodies, right? And I think that the Italians really picked up on this, um, and so they saw Joyce and Proust, for that matter, who they saw as you know, offering a, a, a really detailed study of the customs of France, right? The social habits and mores of his French context. Right? The Italians saw in writers like Joyce and Proust people who were sort of hyper naturalists or hyper realists who were getting at right the the very uh, nature of reality as it is lived by human beings right and and i think frankly that that is a very insightful reading of those texts and frankly it's a reading that accords with joyce himself who said that ulysses is the start of a new realism and so i think that new realism of joyce's ulysses is actually closer in in many ways to some uh, examples of Italian neorealism than is the, the more documentary, uh, naturalistic um, sort of reporting that we often expect to find in those films. I think anybody who watches, say, Rome Open City with its, you know, with its melodramatic turns, with its slapstick humor, right? You can't watch that film and think, right, this is a newsreel. That's not what it feels like. But it does feel like the way that, you know, reality has this kind of you know, uh, impurity to it, that, that we, we experience things, we reflect on things, and we shape our experience of reality through our, um, through our senses, through our brain, through, through the way that we live in the world. And, and I think that neorealism 
it, to my way of thinking, means that, right? It's, it's a new realism. It's, and it's a new realism that comes after the innovations of modernism. That's hmm. so interesting because, you know, as you've been talking, I was um, formulating a thought, which is, well, what if it were the other way around, that instead of seeing um, Proust and Wolf and Joyce particularly as these arch examples of uh, European modernism, um, and instead you're suggesting that there's the start of the new realism with them with regard to time, with regard to certain aspects of embodiment and the representation of that. You know, what if we looked at um, neorealist cinema, for example, it's, it's better illustrated by the cinema, I think, and the, the sort of the, the famous hallmark of cinema, of neorealist filmmaking, the long take, for example, or the dead time, uh, as it is somehow, as it is sometimes also referred to. What if instead of seeing that as as avant-garde, um, you know, it was certainly with regard to the codes and context of um, feature films, um, especially dominant modes of feature filmmaking, such a thing was fairly iconoclastic, right? And um, at the vanguard of a new way of representation of representation. So it's so interesting to, um, to again, to shine a new light on that and to see how, uh, how on the one hand, the, the terminology helps us to both fix an historical period as well as trace genealogies of meaning across time, but not to be, um, not to be held back by that, but rather invited to explore a less, um, you know, a less pigeonholed way of thinking of this particular period. I mean, the the historical period is problematic, right? That's my next question for you. Um, after my ramble, sorry. Um, my next question was, um, what about the historical periodization? Uh, you've talked a little bit about it and going back to um, the end of the 19th century and naturalism. Um, but w- what are the stakes? I mean, a lot of people want to be purists about this. And um, I suppose there's there's some value to that. I think it's less interesting. But um, talk to us about some of those, um, some of the stakes in that in that. Um, discourse about neorealism and how by 1949 neorealism was was on its way out for example we've seen all the best that neorealism had to offer so i was wondering if you could if you could um speak about that a little bit yeah i think you know this is a, a question periodization that has really vexed scholars of neorealism and it, it's one that um is you know is crucial for understanding the films but but it's troubled by uh, you know, questions of politics, right? So the, the further back that you make neorealism go, the more that then it becomes uh, bound up with fascism, right? Fascism in Italy that, you know, rules until 1943 and then comes back to power again um, in the uh, uh, so-called, uh, you know, Republic of Salo in, in the North, right? The, this kind of Nazi puppet regime. And so if you trace neorealism back to 1943 or earlier, then you're tracing neorealism back into the cinema under fascism. And that's, I think, troubled a lot of people and, and made them uh, often try to, you know, think about uh, a, a fundamentally distinct new neorealism that starts after the war. And I think, 
you know, at this point, nobody, I think, really accepts that view of things, right? That, that I think it's it's now much more understood that we need to look back into that earlier cinema of the of the 30s in order to understand neorealism. Um, but this this question then of, of dating, right? It had, we we need to think about where it starts, and and as you pointed out as well, where it stops, right? There there are those who see you know neorealism sort of being the the trend or tendency that shapes all of Italian cinema for decades to come and, and those instead who see this as a kind of short-lived post-war moment that then gets displaced by by other movements. And I think in in the scholarship, this is um you know this question of look, you know, let's say purity versus impurity, this kind of pure um you, you know stream of near uh, you know a total neorealist uh work that that you can trace across history or this kind of you know impure sense of of neorealism is something that for a few years enters into all of Italian culture so you get neorealist genre films or you get genre films at least that pick up on aspects of neorealism right so either there's this kind of pure idealized neorealism that let's say you know you can find in five films um, or there's th- this, you know, much more capacious sense of neorealism that you can find e- everywhere you look, f- at least for a few years. And in, in the scholarship, that often gets associated with two um, key uh, scholars of neorealism, Lino Michike, who had this vision of neorealism as a karstic river, right, which is, you know, pure and clean and rises above the ground at some points and then goes back down underneath. So you can find according to Michike, going back even into the silent period with films like Asunta Spina, right? You can find these, you know, immersions, eruptions of of neorealism as it comes above ground, and then it goes back down underground, says Michike, when you get these kind of colossal colossal fascist epics, and then fascism goes away, and pure neorealism comes up again from the ground, and you get um, Bicycle Thieves and Umberto D and La Terra Trema. Um, I'm much more sympathetic to Farasino's view, uh, which describes neorealism as something not so much as a karstic river, but more like a swamp, right? That seeps into everything so that you get, you know, in in the post-war period, you get these kind of opera films that, that are popular in Italy, but that get sort of inflected with a bit of neorealism, or you get gangster films, right? La Tuada Il Bandito the, is a film that I really like. That's a gangster film, right? It's It's got shootouts and uh, you know, men in tuxedos at, 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 at fancy parties with cocktails, um, you know, chasing down the baddies. Um, but it's also inflected with these, you know, the questions of the, you know, the returned soldier that you could easily find in a neorealist film, right? And and style often that you can find in the neorealist film. And, and this sense of impurity, right, of, of a neorealism that seeps into everything, I think helps us maybe to think about, you know, getting beyond this more limited sense and, and 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 looking at the category more broadly. But if we do that, then I think it, it's hard to see, you know, that um, spreading as neorealism even, you know, into the 50s and, and 60s. It's probably much more short-lived. And yet, you know, you were speaking earlier about um, Divorzio all'Italiana, right, which, which, you know, is a film that then gave the name to Commedia all'Italiana, comedy Italian style. And one of the things that's often said about comedy Italian style is that those films are very much influenced by uh, by neorealism, right? I think about um, a film like I- Isoliti 
Ignoti that you know begins in housing projects that look like they could just as easily have been in bicycle thieves, right? There are these elements that that then continue, and I think thinking about those continuities can be meaningful as long as we don't then you know think that all of Italian cinema is somehow neorealist, right? Um, and you know, I mean, these are so these are such interesting questions, um, and. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the politics here. You know, in your last, this is not my last question, but I am going to be talking about the last chapter, um, which is entitled Choral Politics. And you write that, um, I'm going to cite you from your own text, the object of neorealist politics was not revolution or even ideological instruction, but rather the promotion of social solidarity. And so there's this inherent tension in trying to inculcate national solidarity on the one hand, and on the other, navigate the post-war confusion of Italy's missed opportunity for its own overcoming of the past. I'm going to skip the mouthful of German, which I probably wouldn't pronounce very well, Um, but the overcoming of the past, which Nazi Germany was forced to perform through the spectacle of war crimes tribunals and so forth. How does the trope, so this chapter where you're mapping this out um, is entitled neorealism's choral politics. And I was hoping you could help us understand about the trope of the chorus and how it helps us to map these tensions and fissures in in this particular moment. Sure. So um, one of the things that scholars often talk about is, you know, this missing Italian Nuremberg, as you were saying, the the sense that um, whereas Germany was forced to confront its past, that, that Italy largely wasn't. Um, you know, and I think that's both true and 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 not true. It, it can be overstated, but I think in 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 general terms, I think that that's accurate. Um, and so again, that that introduces, you know, uh, that introduced real problems for the the post-war I- Italian state, right? You had all kinds of continuity in the the you know in, in the government, in the police. Um, you know, in the institutions of society, there is this real continuity. And I think, you know, the the more, uh, you know, militant anti-fascist partisans, I think, quite rightly, probably found this very troubling. Since this was the case, right, since this was the situation that people were living through, right, the question then became, so what what, what are we supposed to do now, right? What what do you do in a country that now you know it declares itself to be founded on the values of anti-fascism, right? That's something that's in the Italian constitution. Then what what do you do with all of these former fascists, right? That's that's a question, right? And it's a question that was being debated in Parliament, you know, that was probably being debated in people's homes, and that I think is also appearing up on the screen, right? You have films like. Um, like Caccia Tragica, in which the the bad guys are um, you know former fascists and 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 Nazi collaborators, right? This is something that's being worked out on the screen. And so, in thinking about the the politics of neorealism, I was trying to think about what these films, you know, were had to say about that question, and then you know what they what they wanted viewers to do, right? Are these films, for instance, that are um, advocating epurazione, right? The the purification, right? Are they trying to incite people to get up and go, you know, assault their fascist neighbors? Um, And I don't think so, right? But you could imagine, given the situation, you know, a a cinema that might 
do that. So if it's not doing that, right, then then what's neorealism really after? And like you said, I, in my chapter, I talk about these these choral politics, right? Because chorality, choralita, is one of the terms that people often use to describe neorealism. Choralita, the you know chorality, the chorus, meaning in this case a collective subject or these moments of collectivity or of community in which instead of you know the the lone hollywood hero you get films that try to depict right a, a neighborhood uh you know a, a a larger social conglomeration right so why right and and i argued that this sense of 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 chorality was about performing the creation of a new community right so it's it's about showing people how they can come together uh, and, and, and express a collective voice, but under new terms, right? Come together in new ways and for, for new purposes so that what constitutes community, what constitutes Italy is no longer what the fascists said, right? We aren't bound together like those, you know, the, the sticks in the fascist bundle, right? We come together in a, in a very different way, right? We come together in this you know, new sense of community, this new sense of chorality. And, and I talked about a film like Il Sole Sojancora, which has this very famous scene in which the, this partisan band has been discovered and two of the ringleaders are um, rounded up and, and they're going to be killed by firing squad. And the the German soldiers in this um, in, in this scene in Il Sole Sorgiancora, they go around the town and they bring everyone to watch this execution. And the the two uh, characters they're they're played um, by the future directors Carlo Lizzani and Gillo Pontecorvo. They're they're marching to their death, and Lizzani, who plays the priest, he begins to to mumble to himself the the litany. Of Loreto, right? He's he's muttering this prayer, and it's a it's a call and response prayer. And you hear you know, somebody in the audience who who picks up on this and and utters the refrain "Ora pro nobis," right? And first it's that one voice, and then it's a few more, and then it's a few more until the entire crowd is is shouting "Ora pro nobis." They're shouting the response to the the priest, and this. Prayer then becomes this moment of, of rebellion, right? Of rebellion against the Germans. And it's a declaration, I argue, of the, this new community, right? A new anti-fascist community. It's a choral declaration of a new anti-fascist community. And I think that what films like Il Sole Sojancora are doing then is, is performing the creation of this new community, right? They're not, in other words, just, just reporting a collective voice. They're, they're creating that collective voice. Right? They're, they're creating and performing for their audience this new community that, that exists on screen before it ever exists in reality. And I think, you know, if, if, if neorealist politics had, you know, had succeeded in their goal, right, the, the community might have been a different one, might have been more anti-fascist than existed in, in reality, right? But, but that that's, I think, what they were after. And, and that's what I think these films are asking of us as viewers, right, is, is to see ourselves in this new community, to recognize our voice as part of this collective voice of the choir. Right. And the interesting thing, of course, about the chorus is that while they're all singing the same song, there is polyphony to the chorus. There are different voices. There are different 
Um, there's point and counterpoint. I mean, there's so many different things that are going on in that conceptualization of chorality, right? It's not just everyone singing univocally, um, but rather in their own voice coming together. So again, the distinction between, as you were saying, the the fat the the fast case, the bundle of sticks, and um, the new national solidarity. Uh, you know, it's no, I think that's exactly right. And if, if I could, I think that's why it's so important that it isn't being dictated by the priest, right? He's mumbling to himself in this scene. Yeah. It's coming from the crowd and it's each member of the crowd sharing his or her voice, right? And, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's that, right? It's not hierarchical. It's not dictatorial. It, it, it is very much individual and polyphonic, I think, is a great way to put it. Yeah. You know, um, the problem with political cinema is that it can be deadly sometimes. It can be didactic. It can be deadly. It can be the the antithesis of what you want to do to win those much vaunted, famous hearts and minds, right? Um, especially if you're, I, I don't mean to say that they're propaganda at all. That's not what I'm saying. But if you are interested in, uh, in your films garnering some kind of um, uh, social response like the one you've been describing, then they have to be captivating. They can't simply be didactic or indexical, um, like some of the documentaries, right? Um, and you you said um, one of the reasons, you, to bring you back to Caccia Tragica for a moment and De Santis's um, uh, uh, Riso Amaro, um, you know, Caccia Tragica doesn't have Silvana Mangano's legs, does it? Um, it is, uh, you know, Andreotti who said famously, I believe, right, less rags, more legs, that at the end of the 40s, that what Italians, what Italians needed to see in his, in this famous, you know, in the words of this famous Christian Democrat, were less rags, more, more legs like manganos, mm -hmm. but also obviously to, um, to keep the, you know, that post-war Marshall Plan investment money coming in and investing in uh, in Italy in the post-war. No, I think I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, De Sanctis knew what he was doing, I think, in, in bringing people to the theater for, for Rizzo Amato through that, the, the, you know, through the body of, of Silvana Mangano. But to defend Caccia Tragica for a moment, it does have some scenes that are straight out of, you know, great Hollywood Westerns. And I think, you know, when we think about neorealism in those less pure terms and, and you know, allow the genre elements to, you know, to, to speak to us, then I think we can see that, you know, even, you know, even a film like that, right, has real audience appeal, right? It, it has the same audience appeal that you would get, you know, from, from, from shootouts in any other kind of film. Mm. And I think, you know, that that's true of so many of the neorealist films. And, and we, we, I, and I think we overlook those genre elements to our, to our peril, right? There's a reason that, you know, that, that people could, and I think did enjoy these films, right? They're, they aren't just, propaganda. I don't think really they're, they're propaganda at all. Well, I, no, I, I shouldn't. Um, there were some films that might have been propagandistic, but rather what you're saying is that some of these films, precisely because of their genre elements, are more political than we might think. And, and, and again, drawing into the, um, uh, into, into the common project or the shared project. And that's why, uh, you argue that, you know, the politics of films like Bicycle Thieves in Rome, Open City, um, th there's more to that, right? The melodrama of Open City is as important as the, this is London calling, this is the voice, this is, you know, this is the voice of London, I think is how it opens, right? Um, something like really 
documentary, despite the soundtrack, which doesn't sound documentary at all. Um, but I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more, maybe on Bicycle Thieves as the the political as political cinema, as more political than we might, because it does seem more melodramatic than Rome Open City seems. Sure. Um, I think, you know, what, what I think a, a film like Bicycle Thieves is doing, right? And, and I spoke earlier about that word, kronaka, a word that, that, that I've thought about a lot and that, that I've thought about you know, in the context of Bicycle Thieves, right? What, what does it mean to call Bicycle Thieves a, a chronicle? And I think that what, what they meant, you know, was in, in trying to get poor people, let's say, right, to understand why they were poor, to, to try to understand, in other words, what the, the social structures were that were responsible for their individual experience. And, and when you think of it in those terms, right, we, we see his bicycle being stolen and we see the look of terror in his eyes and we know why it's there. Right? And, and Cesare Zavattini, the screenwriter for Bicycle Thieves, wrote at the time that, you know, you know Rome is as full of, of, of bicycles as it is of flies, right? They're stolen all the time. This isn't something that would ever even appear in the newspaper. Nobody would pay any notice to a stolen bicycle. And yet I will show you why this is the most important thing in the world to this man, this woman, and, his, and their children. And that in doing that, right, he's giving you a different sense of what matters in the world, right? A different hierarchy of values, as he puts it. And, and he does that then in order to try to get you, I think, to try to get us as, as viewers to think about our, our world in new terms, right? And, and, and one of those terms is the chronicle, a term that Zavattini used a lot, right? To see, in other words, our own experience in historical terms, right? Because chronicle also has this sense, right, going back to the Middle Ages of of historical chronicles, right? Where we can see how the world came to be the way that it is, how our lives came to be shaped by forces that are out of our direct control. And in, in doing that, right? And in adopting this new hierarchy of values, I think the idea is that, that we can try to, to remake the world in, you know, so, so that people like um, Antonio Ricci in Bicycle Thieves don't suffer the way that they do in that film. Mm. So, you know, you've been very generous with your time and I'm going to ask you one more question before I ask you our standard um, outgoing question, which is, you know, what's your, what are you working on now or what's your next project? But I'm asking everyone who comes on the show these days to, um, to talk, to talk about how their subject under the aegis of Italian studies uh, plays out transatlantically or extra peninsularly. And, and I think that you're getting at this in your conclusion, uh, where you talk about realist phenomena outside of Italy, and you touched on that very briefly um, earlier. And I uh, th- wondered, uh, y- you end you know, with this quite modestly by saying that you think there's a lot left to be said about neorealism. And I wanted to ask you, um, what are, in your view, the avenues left to explore or which avenues do you think uh, would be the best to turn down now as we consider uh, neorealism inside of Italy, outside of Italy, transatlantically, in terms of the Mediterranean, hemispherically? What are your thoughts about that? Um, well, I think 
if if we think about it transatlantically, to to my mind, that means just getting beyond the kind of proprietary understanding of neorealism that we can sometimes have in uh, in Italian studies, or, or the proprietary sense of, of of Italian culture more broadly that we can have in, in Italian studies. That, as I said earlier, this term neorealism in its Italian context wasn't used only to refer to Italian works. So, if we think about neorealism then in the way that it was used at the time. We already are looking inter- internationally, transnationally, transit, in, in a more transatlantic way, right? And and, and there's a, a famous example right, that gets cited in a, in a number of studies of, of neorealism that's you know supposed to show the purity of this you know Italian cinema, where you know the, the Hollywood producer David O. Selznick goes to Vittorio De Sica, who's making Bicycle Thieves, and asks him to cast Cary Grant in the starring role, and De Sica says, you know, no. I couldn't, you know, Cary Grant wouldn't fit in, in, in this kind of film about a poor, you know, out, out of work Roman worker, right? And, and casts instead a real uh, Roman worker, Lamberto Maggiorani instead. And, and people cite this as this great example of, you know, neorealism against Hollywood, of neorealism as being, you know, about authenticity, about the, you know, the authentic Italian um, landscape and authentic Italian uh, language and, and 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 authentic Italians, right? And and yet that wasn't the whole story. the The story is that Selznick went to Desica and asked him to cast Cary Grant, and Desica said, "I don't think Cary Grant's right for the role. How about Henry Fonda, right? Who's uh, you know, maybe star persona fits a little bit better." And Des- uh, Selznick turned down that request for Fonda and cast Majorani. And, and it, it, pardon me, Selznick turned on that request and Desica cast Majorani. And and I think. You know, thinking about it in those terms, right? Getting beyond the sense of purity, getting beyond the sense of proprietary, you know, proprietary understanding of neorealism, and, and and viewing it more broadly, I think makes us, you know, naturally look at things from a transatlantic perspective, perspective from a more international perspective. And I think that's certainly something that you know studies have have already begun to to do. As I said, there are two books on global neorealism. There's a, a, a book by Origelli on, on uh, you know, Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman and, and rethinking uh, neorealism's relationship to Hollywood. Um, you know, I think there's, there's so much good work being done on neorealism right now. So there's been a recent book published by Francesco Pitasio, who looks at neorealism and, and intermediality and neorealism and material culture. He has you know, really fascinating chapters on, say, the advertising material, the movie posters around neorealist films, and, and he reads those uh, in, in, I think, a, a really innovative way. Or there's Stephen Gundel's new book on stardom and neorealism, right, which, which seems counterintuitive, right? Neorealism is the age of non-professional actors, and yet he's showing how it's actually this period that, you know, helps to remake the Italian star system and eventually launches the, you know, big Hollywood, uh, you know, big Italian stars of, of the 50s and 60s like Sofia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni. And then, you know, Catherine O'Raw is doing work right now on, you know, non-professional actors in, in neorealism, and I think showing how, you know, they, they came to be cast, how this system worked, right? Um, this is work still in progress, and I think, you know, really promising. I think there's so much that, that people are doing now around and on neorealism. Um, and so, you know, you're right that I say in the end that I think neorealism still has much more to say, and I think people, scholars are, are trying to, to help us to, to see and to hear that. 
And, and I think, you know, my work is intended to try to open that up, right, to, to get us to look past, you know, the, the, the sort of prejudices um, and, and biases and, and blind spots that we've had and, and to be able to see more of neorealism. So I think my answer to your question would, would be that there are just so many works that have been unstudied or understudied, right? I looked at a couple of them, but there are dozens and, and you know, 80, 90, hundreds of, of, of films that, that people don't write on at all or write on only um, only briefly. There's the, the theater, right? I look at one play, Leopoldo Trieste's Cronica, but there's so much theater in the post-war period that I think really could stand to be studied a- alongside neorealist films. There, there's the literature, right? There are some famous novels that I think still are, are read and studied, but there are so many more. And reading the reviews in these journals, I have you know, started to, to collect lists of these titles of books that sound great and that you, know, you find nothing about. I think if neorealism has more to say, from my perspective, it's because we've looked at so little of what neorealism really was. We've looked at a handful of films and we've looked at them you know, in great depth and I think with great sophistication. But my hope is that as we move forward, we can begin to expand the body of text and films uh, that, that we're looking at and, uh, and really open, open the field up and, and see what we find. Well, speaking of moving forward, um, how are you moving forward these days, Charles Levitt? What is your, what is your current research project that we have to look forward to? Uh, well, one thing that I'm doing is is looking at the theater. Um, I was scheduled, you know, before the the recent pandemic, to give a paper on the the Teatro di Massa, the mass theater in post war Italy, where they did these you know big productions with hundreds, sometimes thousands of uh, in, uh, of actors, right, non professional actors, putting on these huge productions that were really uh, innovative and that I think deserve more attention. So, so one thing I'm gonna begin to do is to look more at those and, and more at the post-war theater. Um, but my my big project, right, my, my book project, it goes back to an article that I published in 2014 called Impegno Nero that looks at the, um, the Italian investment in participation and reflection on the, the struggle for freedom and justice by African-Americans in the United States. Um, and that I have been teaching this semester in a graduate course at Notre Dame, looking at you know Italy from the beginning of the 19th century through the present day, and how uh, key writers, artists, filmmakers, philosophers, politicians, and intellectuals have um, have participated in, um, have have tried to lend their support to, um, and have drawn upon that freedom struggle from uh, African Americans in order to uh, rethink what it is to be. Italian and what it is to be a global citizen. And, and that's a, a project that, as I said, I've been working on since, um, since about 2014 and that I'm hoping to carry forward uh, now in, into the future and to, to turn into a second book. Well, that sounds really fascinating. And thank, thank you for, your, for being so generous today with your time and, and your thoughtfulness and, of course, for bringing us to uh, this new book, Italian Neorealism, a Cultural History, um, again, for our listeners, just published by the University of Toronto Press in its Italian Studies series. Charles Levitt, thank you again for your time, and um, we'll look forward to having you the next time. Thank you, Ellen. I've really enjoyed being here with you.